0: Well, I'm going to start tonight by sharing just a couple of letters with you that were given to us. Um, our, our college ministry and our church participated in what our church calls I Love Denton Day a couple weeks ago. And our uh, college ministry took over uh, Newton Razor Elementary, which is right over there. And uh, they sent us a card. I, I don't know. Anybody in here work at the Newton El- Elementary site? Got a few of y'all in here tonight. That's Awesome. Um, well, they sent us a card uh, from their uh, teachers and some of their kids, I think, drew some of these pictures. I hope it was the kids that drew these pictures and not the teachers. But uh, no, they're, they're awesome, seriously. And uh, so I, I wanted you to at least see this, see the inside, and uh, afterwards, feel free to come up here and uh, and read through this. I want to share another letter that, you, that we got, uh, <clears throat> uh, email, actually, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, Casey Leak uh, forwarded this to me. Uh, Casey's one of our life group leaders, and he helped lead our trip to New Orleans. Uh, this was written to him, and, and uh, but talking about our, our team. And let me, let me just tell you which team this is talking about. Our, we had four teams split up all over the city when we were in New Orleans, and he, I think he's going to flash a couple pictures up here. There's one, there one house. We actually weren't even supposed to be working at this house, uh, but we ended up being at this house because of the rain. And uh, as you can see, now, I don't, I don't know if you can really tell from the picture, but that house uh, is a single-story house that has been put on stilts 20 feet in the air, uh, that, that house went through Katrina. In fact, inside the house, you could see the water line, where the water line was, which was about to here uh, on me. And uh, this, this guy who went through Katrina, and this was his home, uh, just decided, the house is never gonna flood again. <laughs> so they uh, jacked it up uh, 20 feet in the air, and it's, it's really interesting. You can see there's a house on the left side right next to it. That's a two-story house next to it. Um, and that's the fence right below that you see right there. I mean, it's crazy driving in this neighborhood. You see these normal houses, and then, You got this house, you know, up on stilts. But uh, we worked in this house. And let me read you the email from this guy. His name's Roland Lambert. Um, I think he's French, if I remember right. Uh, But he he emailed us, said this. For the first time since you left, I've had a little time to catch up with my mail and paperwork. Uh, First, I finished securing the hinges and I put a padlock on the door we installed. It allowed me to move stuff out of stores just in time to avoid incurring another monthly charge. Casey, you cannot imagine how much of a boost your help gave me. And it came at the very moment I was losing it. Your right away, uh, your, you right away sized up the work to be done, and thanks to your competence and leadership, we completed the specialty work, framing and girder, which I have no idea what that is, uh, and, and all in the nick of time. Of course, we could not have done it without Adam uh, Adam Yarbrough, um, who's also one of our life group leaders and helped lead this trip. Uh, he says, of course, we could not have done it without Adam and the wonderful, dynamic, and dedicated bunch you brought along, talking about our students. My gratitude also goes to Sarah and Jennifer who coordinated the whole thing. And as angels, you disappeared as softly as you appeared. But I did not have to pinch myself because the extraordinary work you had done was there for me to see and build upon. I will never forget your generous assistance. And one day in the future, as I'm stronger, it will be my turn to give back and help the community. In the meanwhile, I will send some pictures of the progress and, I'll, uh, and I hope we'll stay in touch. Uh, thanks again from the bottom of my heart to you and the entire crew, yours truly, Roland Lambert. Um, pretty, pretty cool email, and uh, there's, there's a, you know, a lot of story behind this guy, but uh, um, cool opportunity to, to serve with people like that and see the impact that it's making. Uh, tonight, we're going to be back in our, our study in First Timothy, so you can go and begin opening your Bibles there, but before you get to First Timothy, stop in Matthew. Um, we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 7 tonight, and, and we're going to go here because I'll just be honest, this is a text that in a lot of ways haunts me. As, as a leader, as a pastor, um, as somebody who is, who is leading a group of students on a, on a week-in, week-out basis to gather like this and to pray together, to sing songs of worship together, to uh, study the Bible together. And then also, you know, as someone leading teams to serve in our community, I love Denton Day, uh, leading teams to New Orleans, we're gonna be going to Zimbabwe, Honduras, and Kenya here pretty soon. Th- this text really haunts me, and I wanna show you why. Uh, and I, and I, I guess, you know, Saying ha- it haunts me maybe is, is a really negative term, but it really, it really keeps me in check. And, and I feel like we need to read it tonight because I think if, if we hear what it's saying, there's absolutely no way that it will not keep us in check as well. So it's Matthew chapter seven, beginning in verse 21. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus is the one talking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, he starts off by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There, there's a lot of people who give lip service to Jesus. There's a passage in Isaiah 29:13 that says this, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So, so you have these people who are saying, Lord, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, Lord, I, I trust you. Lord, Lord, I love you. Lord, Lord, I worship you. These people, they're, they're talking about Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. They're singing songs of worship to Jesus. But then Jesus comes and he says, but only the one who does the will of my father is the one who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So as these people hear Jesus say this, you can hear them jump in and say, well, Jesus, look at what we're doing. We're doing all of these things in, in your name. We're, doing all, we're going to New Orleans and we're serving these people in New Orleans. We're taking time out, a Saturday out for Isle of Denton Day. We're serving this local elementary school. We're serving in other places. We're planning to go across the Atlantic Ocean to Zimbabwe and in other places, Honduras, Kenya. Look at all these things that we're doing. We're doing these things for you in our hearts and our minds, for you. And look at the impact that it's having on people's lives. And you can almost hear Jesus as they're saying these things, cut them off. And, and listen to what he says. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many, many miracles? In other words, they're saying, he's saying, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at these things that I'm doing for you. But he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people, they were worshiping, they were praying, they were talking about Jesus just like us tonight. These people were doing things as they believed in their heart, in their mind, in their heart for Jesus, just like we did in New Orleans, just like we did I Love Denton Day, just like we do all these other times. But what does Jesus say? He says, many of these people will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you have a cell phone, would you please turn it off? If you, everybody pull out your cell phones. This is, this is important tonight. Pull out your cell phones, everybody. Stick them on vibrate or turn them off. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't want us to miss this tonight. I don't wanna miss this tonight. And I know Satan wants us to miss this. And so tonight I pray that you would eliminate all distractions inside and outside. I pray that you would remove, begin tonight, removing the blinders, the the things that are blinding us from seeing the truth, remove the fog. And Lord, for those of us in this room that think we are above the fog, rip away that pride and reveal to us that that we are just as susceptible to the fog as anybody else. We're just as susceptible to being blinded as anybody else. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did, did we not do these things? And then I will tell them, he says, plainly, I never knew you. These people were worshiping, praying, talking about Jesus just like, just like we are tonight. These people were doing th- things in the name of Jesus just like we've been doing. But what does Jesus say? He says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Why? Why does he say this? They didn't know him. He didn't know them. They didn't have this, this relationship with him. You know, there's two questions. When I meet with students, there's two questions that I really like to ask. The first question is, what is the gospel? So, so let me ask you that question. I want you to think about this. Think of the answer to this in your mind. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What would you say? Think about that for a second. What is the gospel? Okay, so the second question that I like to ask students is this. Okay, if, if, if you were standing before God right now, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Think about your answer to that question. And let me tell you why I like to ask these two questions. This is how it typically plays out. Almost every time it plays out like this when I ask these two questions. I ask the first one, what is the gospel? And almost verbatim, no matter who I'm meeting with, almost verbatim, they say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And some of them are overachievers. They go the extra mile and they say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose again from the dead and he lives today. You know, whatever, they might go on from there. But they, they always say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So then I ask them the question, okay, so if you were standing before God today and he asked you the question, why should I let you into heaven? There's always this silence. And they freeze up and kind of lean back and they say, that's a tough question. And they kind of get this thinking posture. And then they, they, you know, they think about it a little bit and they always kind of start to come to the answer of, well, I mean, I've, I guess, I guess he would let me into heaven because I've, I've tried really hard to follow him and, and I'm trying really hard to not sin like I did in the past. I'm trying really hard to be good and I'm trying really hard to do these things and to do these things over here and, and then they kind of come back to you but that's a tough question. And, and let me tell you this: that is not a tough question. If you know the answer to the first question, what is the gospel? You know the answer to the second question because they're the same question, just phrased differently. And it's really, it's really interesting to me that almost every time I ask those two questions, I get two different answers. Let, let, me, give you, let me give you another illustration here. J.D. in a second is going to play uh, an instrumental song on, on through the speakers. and it's a song you've, you've all heard before. It came out in 2003, so you're gonna have to think back a little bit, but uh, it, was, it was super popular in 2003, played all the time on the radio, still has played some on the radio. Now, if you go to a, a sporting event, college sporting event, the, the marching bands almost always play this song. Um, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna play it through the speakers, and then I, I, I wanna just kind of see how long it takes you to uh, recognize this song, okay? Go ahead and play it, JD. Stacy's mom. Uh, yeah, I see y'all caught on to that pretty well. Some, some of you, you know, once you, it took you a minute, you're like, whoa, I don't know, so you started listening harder, but then you, the chorus kicked in and you're like, oh, that's Stacy's mom. Some of you started singing along. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the moment we hear it, we, we recognize it, we know the lyrics to it, we often start singing along to it. But, but here's what I want you to see. Just because you recognize the song and just because you know the lyrics to the song doesn't mean you know Stacy's mom. And just because you're, you're singing the chorus to the song, which I had to make sure I didn't do that because this is being recorded, just because you start singing the, the lyrics to the song doesn't mean that you know Stacy's mom. <laughs> but, but listen, here, here's, why, here's why I use that. This, this tune that we call the gospel, like we recognize it. It's a tune that you, and I, I say this kind of jokingly, but, but it's totally true. It's a tune that you've been hearing, most of you have been hearing since you were a fetus. I mean, you, you know, you laugh, but like, you know, when you're in your mom's womb, like you can hear stuff. It might be a little bit, you know, a little muffled when you're hurt, but but you can you can hear stuff when you're in your mom's womb. And some of your moms were in church, you know, so like half of your gestation period, whatever it's called, you're you're hearing the tune of the gospel when she's at church or when she's listening to the radio, or whatever it is. So from like the time you were a fetus, you've been hearing this tune of the gospel being preached, being played, and so you recognize it. You know the lyrics, you sing along all the time, but just because you recognize it and just because you know the lyrics doesn't mean that you know Jesus. And just because you sing along to the song doesn't mean that you or we know Jesus. So Jesus chimes in here in Matthew 7, and he says, then I will tell them plainly. In other words, the Bible plainly says, the Bible clearly says that the only reason that you will be allowed entrance into the kingdom of heaven is because you and Jesus know each other. And so the big question here is this. Do you? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? There are a ton of people who who know what the gospel is, but they don't know Jesus. This word know that's used here, Jesus says, they don't know me, or I never knew you. That word know in Greek, it's gnosko. Everybody say gnosko. Gnosko. This word gnosko, it's not intellectual knowledge. It's experience. It's experiential knowledge. Gnosko is the same word they use for sex, I was in uh, Glorieta, New Mexico, uh, Collegiate Week, which we're taking a group to Collegiate Week this August. Twenty-four people will be able to go with us, so we'll tell you more about that in the next couple weeks. Um, you want to go? It's an awesome week. But I was helping lead this this Collegiate Week deal. Uh, they used to they used to break up all of the freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors into big groups, and so there's a couple thousand students all together here, and then they would break them up into groups of you know four or five hundred students, and they'd cram them all into one room. and And for a few years, I was leading the juniors, and what we do, we get in the room, we. would I'd, I'd pose some questions and they'd break into small groups, answer, and then we'd come back to the big group, talk about them in the big group. Well, this one, this one year, forget about the context. I don't remember the context. I don't remember the scripture we were looking at. But uh, this one guy stands up in the middle of the group and he goes, look, I, I think what this scripture's saying is that we have sex with, uh, with Jesus, I just about blacked out when he said that. I, I, I had heard of these horrific moments when things like this happen, and, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's happening to me. And so I wanted to kind of like pass out or just run away or something. But so my mind immediately is thinking, oh man, what do I say? what do I say? By time, by time, damage control. And so, I mean, I, he, he keeps on talking I'm like, so, okay, I think what he's try, I think what he's trying to say is, I think what he's trying to say is that that God's word and and God's action through Jesus calls us into an intimate relationship with Jesus. This word know, it is an intimate word. Jesus didn't say, John 17, three, he didn't say that this is, now this is eternal life that they may know about me. He said, now this is eternal life that they may know me intimately. Think of it this way. Heaven is like the flyest most super cool club in existence. And it costs a whole stinking lot to get in. So much, in fact, that if you were a trillionaire, you wouldn't have enough cash to get into this club. If you were the nicest, like multi-Nobel prize winningest person in history, even those accolades would not be enough to make you a VIP to get into this club. The only way that you can get into this super fly club called heaven is by knowing somebody who has like, a, a, a special in with the owner of the club and has the ability to pay the price to get you into the club. So when, when you arrive at this club and God or whoever's bouncing the gates of heaven is there and they say, why should I let you in? Your answer is, well, I'm with this guy. And you point at Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, he's with me. And he sticks his arm around you and they're like, oh, you're with him? Okay, come on, come, <laughs> c- come right in. We, we need Jesus What is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Why would God let you into heaven? Because you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he didn't stay dead. We need Jesus, we absolutely need Jesus. And here's why I share this with you tonight. Uh, Okay, so flip to 1 Timothy five now. And In 1 Timothy five, what we're gonna see pretty quick is this, we need Jesus, but in a very, very, very close second, we need family. We need Jesus, and in a very close second, we need family. Look at, look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this. He says, Do not rebuke an older woman or an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute Purity. Paul continually refers to the Christians in Ephesus as a family. You see it in chapter 3, verse 5, when he's given uh, requirements for leaders. He says, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church or God's family? Then you see in verse 15, he says... He says uh, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Household, same word he uses up above for family. So he, he refers to the Christians there as God's family. Then he uses in chapter five, verses one and two, all these family terms. He uses father, he uses mother, he uses uh, brother and, and sisters. Now for some of you, when I say the word family, it invokes or it kind of brings to the surface some really gross feelings. Because your, your family life has been absolutely terrible. Now, for others of you, when I say the word family, it, it, it makes you want to pull out your cell phone and text mom and dad because you love them. And it's been, it's been they're awesome parents. And, and if that's the case, do it later. But, but I think regardless of our family experience, we can, all, we can all agree and all realize that with family comes friction. Uh, I, I only had one sibling, thank God. Uh, she is three years older than me to the day we share the same birthday, uh, which is absolutely terrible, okay? Because you have to share birthday parties and everything as you're growing up. And just for people who are going to ask, uh, no, we're not twins. I don't know why people ask that all the time. <laughs> three years apart, people just happen to be on the same day that we were born. But anyways, so like I have, I have mastered the ability to pester my sister Uh, And this is something that I honestly, I mastered when I was way younger. I I remember when I was like five years old, my sister was sitting in our playroom, sitting on the couch, watching TV. And uh, I I don't know what happened, but I just, I walked in, I sat down next to her on the floor and as if it were like a turkey leg you saw at the uh, fair, I just grabbed her leg and just took a big old bite out of it, which resulted in a doctor's visit for her. And uh, I think they were considering a rabies shot and putting me down because I couldn't stop biting people. (laughs) But there, there, there have been plenty of moments between me and my sister where there's just all kinds of friction. And it's true between me and my parents as well. I mean, today, like there's, there's, there's friction. But, but with all of that, there's also a deep love and a, and a protective streak that I have for them. And, and there's, a, there's a deep love and protective streak that they have for me, even in the midst of the friction. So, so when my sister was in college and I was still in high school, she had this boyfriend that I, I knew, at least, wasn't right for her. And I don't think she really knew to the extent that I knew he wasn't right for her. So one day she's talking on the phone with him and I walked in and was like, hey, hey let me talk to him real quick. And, and so she gave me the phone, uh, bad move. So I took the phone into the other room and I was like, hey man, um, if you ever call here again, if uh, you ever come here again, if I ever ha- find out you're hanging out with my sister again, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to do it very slowly and painfully. And uh, and then he hung up on me, so I couldn't finish. And so I took the phone back to my sister, and I said, "I think he'll. I think he's going to call you back later," uh, <laughs> but he never called her back. And uh, but but there's that protective streak that you have that you have for family. And and here's what I'm getting at: we we need we need family. We need family. We were created for family. Genesis two, Adam. It's not good for you to be alone. But but specifically, what Paul's talking about here is we need a church family. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's three things that we gain when we connect to the church family. The first is we gain growth. Some of you are stagnant in your faith because you're not connected to the church family. You're stagnant in your faith. Real quick, flip to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just a couple books over, a couple letters over. Uh, chapter 10, verse 23 says this Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, let us not give up meeting together. You could insert with the church family, with your bros and your sisters in Christ. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Some of you aren't growing in your faith because you're not connected to the church family. So you gain growth. The second thing is you gain protection. Some of you, over and over, you, you continue to lose your footing in your faith. You continue to slip in your faith because you know, these people, they, they come and they take stabs at you or you get hit with these temptations, or your professor stands up in your class and points at you and says, you're crazy for believing in Jesus. You're crazy for believing in creation. And because you're not connected to the church family, you don't have that protection. You don't have that support from them. Going back to that Hebrews 10 text. So in connecting to the church family, not only do we gain growth, we also gain protection. And there's a third thing we gain, and that is responsibility. When we can't connect to the church family, we, we all have responsibility in our family. And here in chapter five and, and the first two verses of chapter six, Paul, he, he lists four areas of responsibility that we have within our church family. Now, now normally, this is week 11 of us studying First Timothy. Normally, we, we really dig in and we chop it up, you know, words, sentences, things like that. This time, instead of doing that, um, we're going to take a kind of an aerial view. We're just going to fly over it, okay? and we're going we're gonna to see some, some big principles to pull out of this text instead of just going verse by verse, word by word. So the first thing he says, verses one and two, he says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So the first group of people that that we have responsibility for within our church family are the elders. Now we, we, um, we are a much faster moving generation than the generations before us. Uh, and, and don't mistake speed for uh, productivity, but I'm just saying we're a much faster moving generation. Okay, I mean, social media, we don't have horses carrying our mail places and we don't even use snail mail, snail mail, snail mail, can't talk anymore. Uh, you know, we use email and stuff like that. One of the most frustrating things in the world for me is when I'm like in a hurry to get somewhere and, uh, and I run into, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but like an old, an old person and, uh, and they're like, you know, they, they start talking. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, you know, I need to go. And they're like, you know what? That reminds me of back in 1941 when I was in Cal. No, was I in California? I was in, I was in Texas. What? Yeah, I was in, I was in California. No, I was in Texas in 1940. And they just take forever to tell these stories. And I'm like, the whole time, like, I gotta go. Like, I have to move. One of the most humbling and most learning experiences for me in college was serving in a ministry called Elder Serve. And what I signed up for was to meet uh, once or twice a week with a guy, I've told you about him, Bubba, uh, for an hour. But you walk into this nursing home and you gotta walk past other people's rooms to get to his room. And so I go, planning to spend an hour, but it never failed. I'm always there for two or three hours because I pass on my right, Miss Emily, I pass on my left, Mr. Joe, and I pass... Charlie and I passed and I, I can't just like totally disrespect these people and walk by I had to stop and say hello but hello turns into a 20-minute story about 1941 and then you got to move on to the next person finally get to Bubba and then you got to make your way back but what Paul's trying to say here is this we have the responsibility two things to respect our elders and two to learn from our elders I mean one there's the the aspect of respect if you just you don't blow you don't blow your elders off Uh, But two, and this is the big one, we have a lot to learn from our elders. You know, I kind of make light of the the storytelling and the slow storytelling, the really slow storytelling. But the reality is, these people have so much more life experience than us and they've traveled so much further. Many of them have traveled so much further in their relationship with Jesus than we have. And they have so much more wisdom. And so Paul's saying, you have a responsibility to respect them and to learn from them. And then he goes on in verses three through 16, and he talks about a very specific issue that was going on in the Ephesian church at that point. And it was an issue uh, with with how they treat widows in the church. I'm gonna read just a couple verses from this section. Verse three, he says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Verse eight, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All over scripture, you see God's heart for the widow. But oftentimes when he mentions the widow, there's somebody else that he always mentions. He almost always mentions who? The orphans or the fatherless. Uh, You see Job 22 verse nine, God says, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. Like he's hacked off that this happened. Psalm 68, five, talking about God says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. James 1, 27 says, religion, the God our father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let me, let me ask you this. Who are the orphans and the widows? The orphans and the widows, it's, it's, I mean, he's not just saying orphans and widows here. By, by pointing out the orphans and the widows, I, th- I think what he's trying to say is they are the hurting and the needy people. I was talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was, I think from this group uh, earlier this week, a couple weeks ago, and they were, they were saying how in another Bible study, they were, they're studying James 1, and they read James one twenty seven which we just read, and, and they asked the question, the person leading asked the question, who are the orphans and the widows? And they said, anybody who has less than what you have, those are the orphans and the widows. And specifically, Paul says, take care of the orphans and the widows, the hurting people, the needy people that are in your church family. And so here's what I wanna say to you. We have orphans and fatherless in our church family. There are orphans and there are fatherless in this room. There are people whose parents were absent growing up. They may have been physically there, but emotionally, spiritually, they were gone. We have people in this room who who are fatherless. Some of you have never met your dad Others of you, your dad may have just never been around. Or maybe he was around physically, but not emotionally. We have orphans, we have fathers, we have widows. And I don't wanna disrespect the traditional term of a widow, but we have widows. And in, in, in I think probably a more modern, at least to include in the modern definition of a widow is, is, is women whose um, the father of their children has just got up and left. Or, or, or young single mothers who have been divorced by their husbands who ran off. We have widows in here and we have hurting and needy people and, and what Paul's saying is it is our responsibility to take care of them. And then he goes on in uh, verses 17 through 25 and Paul talks about our responsibility to our leaders. Uh, Again, we're taking an aerial view here. There's a lot of stuff he says in here and I encourage you tonight to go back and read this because we're skipping over some other things that he says. But he talks about our responsibility to our leaders. And I I wanna start by sharing a few interesting statistics about pastors. Um, 1,500 pastors leave their ministry each month due to burnout, conflict, or moral failure. 1,500, 1,500. 90% work more than 50 hours a week 80% 80% believe that pastoral ministry affects their families negatively. 80% of pastors say they have insufficient time with their spouse. 75% of pastors report severe stress, uh, causing anguish, worry, bewilderment, anger, depression, fear, and alienation. 70% don't have any close friends. 33% felt burned out within their first five years of ministry. Now I'm finishing my sixth year of full-time ministry. And, and, and from those six years, I want to tell you, there's two things that pastors and leaders absolutely need. One is encouragement. Uh, look at verses 17 and 18. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's, it's, It's It's amazing how much criticism and how much critiquing pastors get. And it's pretty amazing to me to to see how many pastors, they go into their ministry role uh, very confident, but before you know it, they're running for their life, more self-conscious and paranoid than they've ever been before. Pastors and leaders, they need to be encouraged. The second thing is they, they need backing. They need backing. Let me explain this. Verse 19. Paul says, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. It's also amazing to me how much gossip goes on surrounding leaders and pastors. It's crazy. Leaders and pastors, they they will spend their lives, like they will spend their energy. They'll pour themselves out for these people. And they'll meet with these people. And these people will share things confidential with them. And these pastors and leaders will keep it confidential. And then just as quick as those meetings happen, that person turns around and entertains the thought of these rumors and these accusations and these, this gossip about that person that is pouring themselves out for them. I mean, the reason that statistic is there, 70% don't have any close friends, is because of this right here. The, it's, it's, it's hard to trust And people so easily entertain these ridiculous accusations, rumors, gossip. And so what Paul's saying is you and I have a responsibility to encourage and back our leaders. And let me say this, I'm not not really talking about myself tonight. As I was reading through this this week, there's three groups of people that almost immediately came to my mind that I want you to know fall into this category. Uh, The first group of people are our life group leaders that serve in this college ministry. Uh, I don't know if you know this yet. Some of you aren't really plugged in here yet. Uh, but every Sunday, we have four life groups with probably about 15, 16 stud men and women from our church who are serving and leading in those life groups. Um, and, and because of their leadership and, and our growth in that ministry, we're, we're, we're adding four more life groups in the fall. We'll have eight in the fall. Um, and, and we have some of those leaders here tonight. If, if, if y'all, I, I know we don't have everybody by any means here tonight, but if you're a life group leader, stand up. I, w- I want people to see you. So, so our life group leaders, our life group leaders fall into this category. Another group that, that came to my mind was our community leaders. Um, if you're a community leader, go and stand up. Again, I know we don't have everybody here tonight. Our, our community leaders, in a, in a very similar way, uh, they're they're pouring themselves out. They're they're. Uh, I'm, I'm getting to baptize again uh, here in a, I think a couple of weeks. Um, somebody who was introduced to Jesus, uh, or I guess reintroduced to Jesus through our community. A couple of weeks ago, I got to baptize somebody who was introduced to Jesus through a community. And it's just so cool to see that happen. People pouring their lives out for, for, for y'all, and for the people on your campuses, and ultimately for God and his kingdom. And the other group that came to my mind, and I, I know we have a lot of people who volunteer and serve uh, for Overflow, like with the greeting team, and setting up the stage, and media team, but we have an actual Overflow leadership team. Um, and I they're here tonight, obviously. If you're on the Overful Leadership Team, stand up. And uh, Nick is up there in the media booth, and, and I don't want to leave out JD. Uh, JD is always here every week, and he also serves with our life groups. But if you're Overful Leadership Team, go and stand up for me. Um, and and I didn't I didn't recognize my two interns, Rob and Kristen, over there. If y'all would stand up too. What, what Paul's saying, though, here in verses 17 through 25 is, is this. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to take care of our leaders that are in our family, to encourage them and to back them. And then there's, there's one more group that he kind of hones in on here. Um, this isn't by any means every responsibility that we have as being a part of the church family. But as far as relationships go, this is another big one that he hones in on. His verses. Uh, one and two of chapter six. I'll just read them both. He says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. You can replace the word slaves with uh, employees and the word masters with employers. And some of the Ephesians saw the fact that they worked for for a Christian boss or they were the Christian boss and they had Christian workers. Uh, They saw that as an excuse or a license um, to take advantage of those people. Or they saw that as a license to be lazy or a license to leave a little bit more slack in the rope or a license to, you know, whatever it was. And Paul says, no. He says, if anything, you should work much harder for those people. If anything, you should work much harder for your brothers and sisters in Christ, your family. And so the fourth thing he says is we have a responsibility to work hard with and for other Christians. Now, here's what I love about this text. We just, I don't know if you realize, we just zoomed over chapter five and part of six. here's, Here's what I love so much about it. Almost every single one of us in this room, if not every single one of us in this room, fits into one of those categories. Almost all of you fit into one of those four categories of people who need to be cared for. And here's what that means. We need family. We need our church family. We need it. But listen to this. Just because you're here doesn't make you part of the family. Just because you... you, have shown up tonight and have been showing up doesn't make you part of the family. When I I first moved to Lubbock, right out of college, I moved out there to take a ministry position and I was gonna move into an apartment but I had to start August 1st. My apartment wasn't gonna be ready until like the end of August. So I had a month almost where I didn't have anywhere to live. So I called the church that I was gonna be working for and said, hey, I need a place to live for like three, four weeks. Is there anybody you can hook me up with in the church? And they said, yeah, we'll hook up with somebody. They call me back and they're like, we got the sweetest little old lady who's gonna let you come stay with her. And I'm I'm immediately thinking, yes, I'm gonna be adopted into this family. I'm gonna be spoiled by this lady. She's gonna cook. She's gonna do my laundry maybe. I don't know. You know know how those sweet old little ladies are. So I'm driving out there the whole way thinking, yes, 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 yes. And I get to the house and I walk up to the door with my bags and knock on the door and she opens it and she goes, you Austin? I said, yes, ma'am, or should I say mom? And uh, (laughs) I I didn't say that second part. I said, yes, ma'am, and she said, I don't cook, so don't expect any home-cooked meals in your rooms over there. (laughs) And and I'm standing there, I like set my bags down like, I wanna go get in the car, call my mom and, and cry, I missed home. But just because we show up, just because we show up doesn't make us part of the family. And let me back up here. That relationship was awesome. She was playing tough because she didn't want me to take advantage of her, but but, uh, she pretty much adopted me in the family. (laughs) Just because we show up doesn't make us part of the family. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And just because you grew up in and around it doesn't make you part of the family. And just because your parents have said it and believe it and live it out doesn't make you part of the family. You must be born into the family. You must be born into the family. John chapter 3 verse 3. Jesus says it says Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, I promise you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then this guy Nick who I mentioned last week, he says He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Twice, twice, Jesus uses this very exclusive language. He says, no one unless two very exclusive terms. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, unless he's been born again. And that means there's one question that is way more important than any other question that we could ever ask in our entire life. And that is, have you, have you been born again? Have you been born into the family? You read on in verse six, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And he says to Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised at me saying this. Nick was like this super religious guy. In fact, he was one of the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. And so people would come to Nicholas asking for religious advice, asking for religious wisdom, asking for, you know, what does this mean when when the Bible or when God's word says this? And he'd give them answers. Of anybody who should know, it should have been him. But he was shocked at, at Jesus saying this to him. And so Jesus says, you shouldn't be shocked by this. You should know this. You shouldn't be shocked by the fact that I'm saying you must be born again. And then he goes on, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. It's really cool what Jesus does here. And you can't see it in the English because in the Greek, the word for spirit and the word for wind is the exact same word. And so what he's saying is, the Spirit's work in our life is like the wind. In the simplest way, here's what Jesus is saying. Just like we know the wind exists, we can know when we ourselves have been born again. How? I mean, there's, there's no visible, I mean, like the wind. You think about the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can feel the wind, right? I mean, recently, you can see the effects of the wind. West Texas, you can see tumbleweeds. here. You can see roofs affected by the wind. So even though you can't actually physically see the wind, you can see, you you know it's there. And he says it's the same way with somebody who's been born again and the Holy Spirit lives in them and is changing them from the inside out. Though there's no visible, tangible stamp on our hand or stamp on our forehead or ticket that you get or tattoo or whatever, You can know when somebody has been born again. There are still obvious signs that accompany the life of a believer. And he says, so it is with everyone born of the spirit. This this is how it is with everybody who has been born into the family. What Jesus is saying is when we are born again, when we are born, uh, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us that, that God begins to change us. There's, a, there's a, a Christian research organization called Barna. Anybody ever heard of Barna? A couple. Barna, uh, it, they, they do all kinds of research. They, uh, they do a lot of surveys to find out how many people in the U.S. are Christians, find out what kind of lifestyle they live in, all, all kinds of stuff. And if, if you ever take a Barna survey, one of the first things they're gonna try to find out is if by their definition, you're a born again believer. And, and so they're gonna ask you one question, maybe two. The first question is, Have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important in your life today? And so if you check yes, then you move on to the next question of them determining whether or not you're a born-again believer by their definition. And so the next question is, do you believe that you're going to heaven? If you answer yes to that, then according to Barna, you are born again. And here's what this amounts to according to their research. According to Barna, that makes almost 15% of the American population people who would call themselves born-again Christians. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper into the research that they do, uh, they they start to ask questions that real, reveal more about the lifestyles of these people. In fact, a couple years ago, they released a book called Unchristian. I don't know if you've seen that book. Um, but this book talks about this. They, they ask all these other questions that reveal what kind of lifestyle these born-again believers are living. And what it, what it reveals is that so many, if not most of these born-again Christians' lives don't look any different than these non-Christians' lives. And then you dig a little bit deeper and then even among born-again believers or people who identify themselves as born-again believers, they don't even all believe the same thing. There, there are so many that when asked later on in the survey, so how, you know, why would you get into heaven or why do you think you're gonna go to heaven? They say, well, it's because I've lived a really good life. So so my question, from looking at those statistics, all these born-again believers or people who Barn is saying are born-again believers, their life looks no different than a non-Christian, what does that research tell us? Does that research tell us that there are a bunch of born-again Christians living just like non-Christians? No. Here's what it tells us. It tells us that there are a lot of people who think that they're born again, and they're not. Because when you look at Scripture, it's very clear that when you are born again, God comes into you and He changes you. Now I'm not saying that you're changed immediately and you're perfect and you never sin again. That's not at all what the Bible says, but you begin to see the fruit of God's work in your life, some quicker than others and some different kind of change and fruit than others. So, Nicholas, Nicodemus, he asks this question, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And I feel like that is gotta be the most important question ever. How, how are we born again? How, how, how do we become part of this family that we so desperately need? And you look a little further than what Jesus says, and, and, and just in closing here, John 3, beginning in verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, his most prized possession, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you underline things in your Bible, underline believes in him. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him, underline that, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. How are you born into the family? It's through believing in Jesus. What is the gospel? It is that Jesus died on the cross. God sent his most prized possession because he loves you and he's showing his mercy to you by not giving you what you deserve and his grace to you by giving you what you don't deserve in his son and by sending his son to die on the cross paying that payment so that you can get into the exclusive hottest club ever in the history of mankind and angels and anything else in creation or in existence he paid the price so that you can get in that is the gospel why would God let you into heaven because you believe that because you're with him, because you recognize that we need Jesus. You know, Paul says we need a church family and we do. We need family, but that's second on the list. Second to we need Jesus because you're not part of the family unless you have Jesus.